Cyber Warrior Network Esports Podcast, where we discuss everything cybersecurity and identify talent in technology through esports. CWN is launching the first cyber esports league that validates cyber skills and matches players to fill real world cybersecurity jobs. From 2014 to 2016, Nigel LeBlanc, a United States Air Force veteran, served as the Cyber Veteran Program Manager for the state of Maryland, where he helped veterans launch businesses and careers in cybersecurity. Today, he serves as the founder and CEO of Cyber Warrior Network. In 2020, at DEF CON Red Team Village, a 14-year-old girl placed in the top 25 of her cyber esports tournament. Play well, get hired. CWN, a league of their own. And now, your host, Nigel LeBlanc. Hey, everybody. Welcome to DEF CON Live with Will Gradito and Sam LeBee. Will, thanks so much for joining us today on this lovely Sunday, hotter than heck in Texas, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Thanks for having me. I appreciate being here. Absolutely. No, well, I'm excited. Um, everyone joining, thank you for joining us on your Sunday as well. We're excited to kind of talk about critical intelligence. What, what the hell does that mean in security, right? Is that threat intelligence? Is that something else? What does it mean for our space and where are we going? What happens when we're not doing anything with it? So, Will, what I kind of figured is we'll kick it off with you, my friend, allow you to give us a little bit of an introduction about your background, who you are, and we'll kind of take it from there. Sure. Yeah, no, I appreciate it. My name is Will Gradgett. I'm the principal security strategist for Prevalian. We're a relatively new startup that focuses on real-time compromise intention and in intelligence and evidence of compromise. Um, so it's, it's great to be here with you guys and uh, you know sharing a Sunday afternoon talking about threat intelligence and compromise intelligence and evidence of compromise and what that means in terms of criticality to organizations. So it's really good to be here. I've been in the industry for going on 26 years. I guess right now, started my career in the military, uh, worked for several startups in the late 90s and uh, in the product side of the house throughout the 2000s, leading intelligence teams, product lines, and a whole host of other things. So it's really great to be here with you guys. Awesome. Well, it's great to have you. Hey, everyone. Sam Labee here from Identify Security, um, friendly confidant of Joel Abraham, president and VP and Will and I have been in the space together probably for a year now, but go back much farther than that. So today we kind of wanted to share with you what is, you know, critical intelligence and what does it mean if you don't have it? So debunk debunking some of those myths around it. What does it mean from an industry perspective? So where do we see critical intelligence threat now? Where are we seeing it in the future? So Will, what's been your insight as critical intelligence has evolved in our space? I think the yeah. synthesis associated with producing actionable intelligence so uh, that allows you to kind of take 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 into consideration everything that that's weighted and leveraged against your entity or your organization from a defensive perspective, and it also enables you to take a look at what you're working with on the inside of your organization in comparison to what, what what's occurring within the threat landscape to see whether or not you've got a state of readiness that's meaningful or not. Mm -hmm. uh, when we talk about criticality and intelligence, it really boils down to what's going to have the highest degree of applicability 
against probable and likely threats, right? So mm -hmm. getting to the crux of, of intelligence work, uh, it's really only meaningful if you have gone through the rigors to produce either through your own capabilities or through trusted third parties, an intelligence posture uh, that reflects the real-time state of compromise that your organization <clears throat> is struggling with. Mm -hmm. That makes total sense. Now, from, from an evolving perspective, as, as cyber continues to grow, right, and we move in digital transformations, is a threat intelligence, say, in the 90s, the same threats we're dealing with now with just different names? Or is it a totally different landscape where the kind of data that you're feeding through your systems or different software is of a greater essence for organizations to have to deal with? Like, how do we boil it down and tackle it so that people care about critical intelligence? Well, there's an evolution with all these things, right? So in the 90s, it was much more rudimentary. You could argue almost in, in some respects primitive by way of comparison to the first decade of the 2000s. Uh, really for the last 10 years, there's been a striking evolution in our ability to, uh, I think in the private sector, collect at scale and then subsequently synthesize in a meaningful fashion and then subsubsequently mm -hmm. prioritize the work yeah. product that we're producing and, you know, and other firms are producing as well so that it has a meaningful impact. And again, you know, I think when it boils down to the applicability of intelligence and ultimately speaking, what's deemed as critical for one ver organization versus another, that requires an organization to have a really solid understanding of who they are, what their risk posture, their compromise posture actually is, regardless of what technological uh, platforms they've deployed or what services they're subscribed to or what personnel they have in place, right? So criticality and intelligence is really an ongoing evergreen exercise uh, in the hopes that you minimize and you continue to minimize not only your risk posture, that's a great thing we talk about in security and have for decades now, kind of taking actuarial concepts and applying them to the cyberspace, but also at the same time, gaining a crisp understanding of what your real-time state of compromise is, right? So looking at compromise as being, you know, the ultimate test to see whether or not all those defensive capabilities and all those defensive postures you've taken to, to protect your business, to defend it, or your organization actually are paying dividends, right? So uh, we're, we're working on things from a, from a much different perspective in the sense that we focus on that, um, that real-time state of compromise and ultimately, we produce evidence of compromise that is irrefutable, right, with respect to what we see and how we see it. Now, how do you get your clients or how do we get, I guess, you know, organizations to take that seriously, right? So you kind of mentioned that if they don't, if an organization doesn't understand what their risk appetite is, or if they don't know, you know, okay, maybe we're going to accept this risk today, but moving forward, we're not going to accept that. How does that come back and relate to the intelligence that we're dealing with? So if we don't understand our risk, are we not understanding the intelligence we have? Or are they two separate things? Well, I think that, you know, having a comprehensive understanding of risk is always going to aid in the impetus of, of formulating a, a real understanding of, of state of compromise. Mm -hmm. uh, our approach is slightly different. Actually, it's, it's significantly different than a lot of other approaches in the industry in the sense that we don't focus on, first and foremost, the discovery and identification of vulnerabilities and ultimately speaking, looking at mm -hmm. probability or plausibility for exploitation. We, we focus on an entirely different um, aspect of the threat lifecycle and ultimately speaking yeah. with respect to our, to our adversarial approach, uh, you know, what we do is we focus on, again, the presence of, of real-time compromise as it relates to malicious code and content that's present, active and live within organizations. So for us, our approach really kind of centers around the fact that regardless of whether or not you've invested in technologies that will mm -hmm. aid you in the defense against a, an adversarial entity, whether they're a cyber criminal or they're a nation state or they're a proxy working on behalf of a nation state, yeah. Our purview and our approach to the to the threat landscape and to the world that we, as we see it <clears throat> really centers around the fact that we have to call into question some of the things that we're doing and have been doing and haven't been investing in. Not so much in the, not so much from the perspective that 
those things can't or don't work, but that, but really ultimately speaking, that we have to reevaluate the efficacy of those solutions while we have access to, to more refined and ultimately speaking, a more mature intelligence work product, which is what we produce. That makes total sense. Now, when we look at it, kind of boiling it back down to the people level, right? Like common sense isn't common. And I feel like a lot of companies don't understand the assets that they have, meaning the intelligence, the data, but then also how do I utilize my people? So when you look at your background, Will, you kind of mentioned when we kicked this off, you come from a military background. So do you feel like that kind of background has helped you not only in security, but being able to deal with critical intelligence and understand the difference between risks and threats and all of that and how we should situate that for an organization? Or is there a certain skill set that folks getting into the industry should be looking to get to, to get into this space? Well, I think that speaking for myself, right, um, <clears throat> having a background in the military that, that focuses on tactical and strategic thought and criti- mm-hmm. critical thinking and the, and the application of that type of analysis to real world situations helps a lot and has okay. helped me. I would imagine that that's also true for other folks, you know, across different branches of service and across the world, right? I think ultimately, when you boils when, when you boil it all down, uh, it really, you know, the best advice I can give organizations when it comes to looking for personnel or really looking for skill sets to either identify in some sort of pre-existent native state or to culminate is really critical analysis and thinking, right? You know, you have to be able to think critically. You have to be able to look at things, disparate sets of data and disparate conditions, and then start to identify patterns and start to look for things that are, would be traditionally speaking outside the realm of the norm. And then, uh, and then take action on those things, right? So critical thought, critical thinking, critical analysis at a base, everything else I think is something that can be taught, but those, those key concepts are really what you need to be striving for when it's, when it comes to, the application of analysis and intelligence as it relates to defensive postures. Okay. Now, do you think with the whole discussion around the skill gap in security, is there a skill gap? Is there not? Do you think this area of critical intelligence, of threat, of incident response is something that you see as being a skill set that's largely missed? Or do you think that's overrepresented and threat hunters and other actors can do things like this? Or, or where do you feel like the spectrum falls for critical intelligence? Well, I think that... Uh, if I understand the question correctly, if I, if I, if I believe that there is a dearth of, of, of talent globally when it comes, you know, with respect to threat hunting and incident response capability, mm-hmm. um, I think that um, it's important for us as, a, as, as defenders to consider programmatically as well as from a business world perspective, how to, how to continue to cultivate and generate and groom and teach those types of skills to, to uh, successive generations of people coming into the space. I do think that there is, as I mentioned, a dearth, right? So there is a, there is a lack of surplus, if you will, of people with those skill sets. Uh, it's not, it's not hopeless, but I think it's something that, you know, when you look at the grand scheme of things, are there as many incident responders, skilled incident responders or threat hunters in the world as there are GRC people? That's debatable, right? Same thing with like network architecture or security architecture folks in comparison to the kinds of skills we're talking about with regards to those parties who are fluent in forensics and incident response and the network and the, and the endpoint level and also hunting across platforms and systems. Those skills are rare. I would argue that there is a dearth of that in the industry today. Okay. What do you think is the most common misconception about this area within security, the critical intelligence, the threat? the threat intelligence, the incident response. When Because I feel like from my perspective, when people talk to me about it, they're like, oh, I'm, I'm going to go down the rabbit hole. So if there's a malicious IP on the network, I'm just going to take that right down. And it's not just taking a ticket, right? It's being able to reverse engineer. But that doesn't really feel like it's getting to the core or the essence of what you're talking about. Well, I, th- I think that uh, one misconception is, is that all, all third-party solutions or offerings are created equal. 
So I'll start by saying that, you know, uh, that that is not the, that is not the case, that there are some that rise um, just like the cream to the top. And there are others that are that are not of the same ilk. Um, I would also argue that one of the biggest bastions of hope that any defender has, whether they're an operational entity or whether they're an executive, you know, we're kind of uh, chartered with the mantle and the mission of defending an organization is being able to properly identify what they have at their disposal. Kind of a motif that a good friend of mine, Rich Barger, used to call living off the land. So being able to properly take advantage of things that are, they have at their disposal that are in-house deployed and then exhaustively leverage those things to their advantage and then look at third-party solutions or offerings to complement or to add further color, right? So I think, you know, as far as misconceptions, uh, one, I think that uh, threat intelligence over the years has been kind of, has kind of gone through various and sundry uh, twists and turns in terms of popularity. And, and there has been, there have been many cases where people have been rather dismissive of it. We saw this early on 10 years ago or so with the advent of, of the APT as a nomenclature term that was kind of uh, foisted upon the industry. And that term has real relevance in, in the discipline and in the tradecraft side of the house with regards to threat intelligence and extends back to United States Air Force and a terminology that they coined specifically for a specific, na a specific nation state and the stylized attack associated with that nation state. And it was co-opted throughout time okay. and history to kind of have a more a, a broader application application, if you will, and applicability. So I think, uh, you know, you know, the first thing I would say is, is that, you know, I think over time, people kind of have had a, a desensitization toward threat intelligence, all things, you know, I think there's this idea that it's all the same, it's or it's or it's simply stated all a repurposed kind of circuitous cycle of IOCs and things of this nature that are largely speaking germane to open source lists and things of that nature. And, that, and that's categorically false. It's not all like that. Um, in fact, yeah. there are very, very good sources out there on the market today that are offering some pretty high grade um, offerings and approaches to the to the problem space and area. So um, one thing I would say is, is that it's, it's absolutely worth your time once you've kind of gone through, if you're a defender, an executive, whatever the case may be, and you've gone through the rigors of looking at your organization really, really diligently, right? And taking taking a, a, a really granular approach to your the inspection of what you expect from your organization as, as it relates to the programmatic side of the house and, and how well that's actually executing through operations as well as the deployment of technology and so on and so forth. You know, I think uh, once you've done that, you know, there's there's real value in, in distilled high grade threat intelligence, uh, but these things are not all created equal. Yeah. So if I'm a new CISO, so we know we've got this dirty, the dirty word of COVID-19, right? It's everywhere. We can't escape it. Do I start and I'm coming into an organization and let's just say I'm coming in totally greenfield, right? So I have everything at my disposal. I've got buy-in from my board. My life's awesome. Do I start with critical intelligence? Do I start with kind of defining out my risk? Do I do some sort of assessment or where does critical intelligence come into the fold of the larger security plan or roadmap for organizations? Well, I think again, right, getting to the getting to this state where you have you have intelligence that is prioritized, right, and ultimately mm -hmm. um, yielding some form of criticality you know, within your own lex organizational lexicon about the intelligence you have at your disposal is kind of an end, it's kind of an end game. You know, like in our case, we, we produce um, evidence of compromise, right? In a real time state of compromise that's powered by compromise intelligence, right? Um, yeah. Every organization is gonna have a different uh, interpretation by virtue of the business that they're associated with or whatever it is that powers that particular organization, whether they're an NGO or a government, right? You're all, everyone's going to have their own purview and their own perspective. So mm -hmm. again, I think once if the first thing I would advocate or kind of encourage people to do is look at things programmatically right, and say, right, what do you have at your disposal? If you're an executive, you're a CISO, right? Mm -hmm. You've got programmatic responsibility, which is kind of like a comprehensive charter for all areas of risk and all areas of security operational and otherwise, right? 
perhaps not not physical, but in some cases, both physical as well as cyber, right? So you have to look at what you're working with first to assess where your gaps are in terms of the people processing technology, right? And really, again, take a hard, a hard long look at what you've got at your disposal. Are you leveraging all the technological uh, implementations that, you're, that perhaps your, your predecessors have put in place? Are you taking advantage of everything that, that you have at your disposal from an infrastructure side of the house, right? Many infrastructure providers provide you know, uh, onboard security functionality, uh, albeit in some cases rudimentary, but still there, right? So you, I think going through and taking a very thorough inventory, if you will, of what you have at your disposal first, ultimately can help you gauge your maturity from both a programmatic perspective as well as a real-time defense capability. And then also, again, looking at uh, the results of, of, an, of an honest and a very thorough <laughs> analysis and assessment of the organization's readiness, right? Going through red teaming exercises, going through continuous monitoring, and then ultimately speaking, taking a look at whether or not those things truly do provide a dividend or pay dividends over time, right? Mm -hmm. which, is, which is one of the, the applications of our own capability, right? Being able yeah. to see whether or not you have that the things that you're investing in or have historically invested in are paying dividends and have efficacy over time. Yeah. Can you kind of share with us some success stories? Well, that's a big word, right? Some success stories you've had with getting the buy-in for critical intelligence or when you found certain things for your customers based off of your different work environments that you've been able to say, hey, here's what we're finding and here's why it's risky for us. And it's able to get the buy-in from the executives or for, for the top level? Or is it always kind of back to your point of out of sight, out of mind? I don't really care about it. I don't have to think about it. It's not my problem. Yeah, I mean, uh, with that, you know, in our case, right? I think you know when people take a look at our platform and what we do, and uh, assess how we're different from what's out in the industry, I think it's it's noteworthy for most organizations um, that it's different and unique in comparison to what they see. And you know, you have to remember, right? If you're a CISO, whether you're at a, a, an SMB or you're at a, at a large Fortune organization, you're you're going to be approached, right? Pretty much from a from an inbound perspective by every sales organization, mm -hmm. marketing organization, uh, kind of on the planet, right? <laughs> that has an outreach yeah. <laughs> that's looking to do business with you, right? Um, yeah. ours, is a, ours is a different approach, uh, not so much in the sense that we don't do those types of exercises, but when compared or when uh, looked at, you know, in comparison with other parties in the in the space that we, and, uh, and in the market we play in, right? We mm -hmm. stand out because of our uniqueness and because of our approach. Ours is very much a, an approach that's driven by uh, an, an awareness and a, a fluency in adversarial activity. Um, mm -hmm. It's also differentiated by the fact that we are a sole, a sole single source provider of intelligence. We don't consume third-party data sets or you know, open source or commercial or otherwise. We're not an aggregator. So what puts yeah. us into somewhat of a rarefied error kind of a space in the sense that there are, are, there are a few organizations that can say with a straight face today that they don't do those things. Mm -hmm. or one of those organizations. For us, really, it, it boils down to a non-hyperbolic approach to the, to what we do in, in, in respect to our uniqueness and how we do it and, and how we produce what we do and ultimately bring it to market in the form of our platform, the Apex platform, right? So for us, really, uh, when we talk to organizations, large or small, we let the intelligence do the talking for us, right? If we, yeah. have, cogn if we have cognizance of, of, of real-time state of compromise and evidence of that compromise as it relates uh, to adversarial activity, and the payloads and the, and the tooling and the binaries and so on and so forth associated with that activity uh, within an organization, right? Uh, we're going to tell you about that. And we're not going to withhold that from you. In other words, we're going to make that available to you for free and allow you to, to gain a, uh, an account on our platform so that you can go ahead and you can take a look at what we're seeing as it relates to you. Now, again, that doesn't mean we're seeing everything globally, right? We have a purview, just like everyone has a purview. Yeah. Um, anyone, anyone who says they see everything is not being truthful, right? But what we you're do- You're perfect. Don't, let, don't fool us. You're perfect. <laughs> 
right. you know, what we, in our case, like, you know, what we do see, we're very confident. And so for us, we let the, we let the data and the intelligence do the talking, right? We don't, we don't need to be hyperbolic. And that's not a statement made out of some sort of a grandiose arrogance. It's just, we feel really strongly in avoiding hyperbole. And we feel strongly in the fact that the intelligence speaks volumes. Mm-hmm. Now, do you think there's a larger community out there that really respects critical intelligence. So for me, when I think of the DOD, the DOJ, the NASA, the, the big consumers of like where threat intelligence and where this this real-time information is so important would sit in the government, right? So I guess for me, putting together the government and the public sector or other industries, private, whatever, kind of putting those together, I feel like the critical intelligence is a little bit different. Is there different critical intelligence or does that word mean something based off of industry or where you work or how do we kind of situate that all together? Well, again, I think that really, you know, organizationally, people are going to take a look at intelligence and they're going to apply a degree of criticality as it relates to prioritization of that intelligence and as it relates to their organization and to the parties that they do business with. Right. Um, So for us, right, I think uh, what we see is, is that. Well, our, and largely uh, due to due to and, the, and to the credit of the intelligence is that it very much depends on the organization, right? So from mm-hmm. a from an industry vertical and a sector perspective, there are certain trends that we see right across the board, and we see certain we see certain verticals pull ahead in terms of overt uh, state of compromise and activity associated with those verticals versus others, <clears throat> naturally speaking. But what we do see, and I think what has applicability beyond uh, public or I guess trans, transpires kind of the veil between public and private and what we do see across industry uh, verticals really is, is that there is a, a, a gross uh, and in some cases very, very pervasive, uh, obvious cross-pollination between threat actors and threat actor groups, operations yeah. and campaigns. So in many cases, right, the intelligence like that we produce, which is, which is very, very, I think like uh, will yield results that might surprise people in the sense that there are actors, right, and, that are at, pl- at play within certain, you know, certain private industry sectors that are absolutely at play in non-private or public sectors, right? So, I, you know, I don't know that any, I don't know, and I hope I'm not giving you too much of a convoluted no. answer, but I think, you know, when you talk about public and private sector in the modern era in 2020, I think from a threat actor perspective, I mean, a landscape perspective and taking an adversarial point of view, you see cross-pollination, right? There are certain actors that, that don't really perceive a difference between, you know, targeting, you know, uh, public sector networks or ecosystems versus private sectors, right? For, sure. for many of these things, this is, the, you know, for many of these organizations and many of their operational and campaign oriented, you know, um, charters, you know, this is, these are, this is just another day at the office for them. So whether or not they're, they're kind of pivoting into or drilling into organizations that are in, you know, banking and finance, for example, in part of their day versus, you know, their activity associated with, you know, uh, public sector entities, you know, it, it may vary, right? So I think that it really boils down to the, I think if your question, if I understand your question, is there a priority or is there a gravitation toward the type of intelligence that we produce, you know, across certain aspects of industry, public and private versus others. I think there are always going to be early adopters. And I think that in our case, we see a lot of early adopters coming from banking and finance, uh, high tech, um, certainly, you know, biopharmaceuticals. um, And then of course there are, you know, there are other entities within the, the public sector that are interested in what we're doing as well. Sure. Just kind of like there's always the industries, right? You hear that are slower than molasses and I don't want to call out any, right? Don't want any hate today, but there's always there's always agencies or organizations that are just going to wait to respond to something, right? Because it's easier and cheaper. So I don't, I don't want to deal with it until I'm breached because you know what, right now I'm good. So what what is your favorite thing about critical intelligence? Well, like what keeps you loving researching this topic, wanting to stay on it? Like where is your sweet spot in all of this that you've kind of honed in on this area? 
what keeps me interested in working in the intelligence uh, yeah. side of the house? Well, I feel very passionately about the space. I grew up in the space, uh, you know, obviously going back into the 90s before it was, you know, a, a marketable industry, if you will. So for me, I, you know, this is very, this is, I, I feel strongly about the sense of mission that's associated with this type of work. Mm -hmm. um, I think other, I think other folks in the space feel the same way, right? There's a real time, you know, obvious, uh, obviously a real time application of, of what we do and how we do it, you know, within the industry and within um, this discipline that's, that's meaningful, you know, obviously for business and from a profit perspective, but there's also a greater sense of obligation to the greater good, you know, which I think comes from this work. Um, and I think uh, for people who are passionate about working in this space, uh, regardless of whether or not they come from a military or an intelligence community background, or whether they are just, you know, coming out, you know, coming in, you know, from the, the civilian side of the, of the house exclusively, people who are passionate about the work, uh, I think recognize the gross applicability of the work on a worldwide scale and uh, mm -hmm. understand the magnitude of what they do. And I think you have to be passionate about this to continue you know, kind of stay in it uh, for the long haul. Okay. So if, as you look back on your 20 plus year career, right, because you've been in the space before security, was <laughs> when did that come out? 2005. And now we're all saying like, oh, cyber is the new thing, even though you've been doing it since the 90s. What would you tell yourself about critical intelligence or about the intelligence that you've been able to be a part of over the years? Would you say, hey, keep doing it. This is a good fight. Have, have there been times where you're like, crap, I really want to get out of this. I just, I can't handle this anymore. Or what would you tell 20 year old Will based off of where you are now? Uh, yeah, I, I guess I would, I would uh, tell that 20 year old, you know, version of me to stay true to the elements of tradecraft and to the disciplinary side of things. Not, not so much the academia because people can get kind of caught up in academia, but really to the real world application of the tradecraft and, and the tooling that's not technological. The technological side of things changes, right? Um, the critical thinking and the application of critical thinking and um, the psychology of analysis, right, as, uh, as, as it were, is really ultimately, I think, uh, for me, what, what, what remains at the forefront of, of what I do and how I do it and what I would encourage other people to kind of bear in mind as well, right? The tooling will always change. The technology is always going to change, right? Yeah. The ability to think critically and to, and to think abstractly about uh, what you're seeing, especially when it's, a, when it's a world that's largely speaking, but not exclusively decoupled yeah. from the physical world is really key, right? Understanding uh, adversarial intent and behavior, being able to look at these things over time, being able to apply disparate schools of thought to an otherwise untangible world is really kind of key. Being able to, uh, to being able to forego any kind of bias uh, and, and kind of jettison biases because biases can, can ultimately lead to your demise, right? Um, that's important, right? So avoiding things like confirmation bias, right? Uh, embracing things like alternate competing hypotheses, right? You know, which is an old school tradecraft kind of a concept, right? And really being able to kind of challenge what you're seeing over time, because it's a very easy trap to kind of fall into where you believe without question that, that, that the path you're on is the right one uh, and you may overlook something. So I guess for myself, you know, I can only speak for myself, but that those are the kinds of things I would remind a younger version of myself. So as you're kind of mentoring and is some of what you just shared with me is kind of applicable to the next generation. But if I look at your background, right, coming up through the military, having your education, <clears throat> let's say someone like myself, right? So I got to go and just go to college, right? And I thought, you know, cyber is really cool now that I'm in it. What advice would you give for someone like me who maybe is not an operator who can pick up the technology? But am I going to get the same level of exposure and be able to understand critical intelligence in a schooling in an education setting? Or is that something that I'm going to be needing to get real life on the job? Like, how do I bridge that gap, right? 
because they can't just come in and be a threat hunter. You have to start at the bottom and work your way up, which is hard. Let's be honest for the millennial generation. We want everything and we want it now. So how are we able to kind of expedite some of that for ourselves or get a better understanding of that moving forward? I think that's a good question. I'll begin by saying that every path, everyone's path is different. I think there's an awful lot of value uh, in uh, diving into the deep end after you've already built a foundation and a, and a deep understanding of things like internet working and systems operations and how how systems work and protocol cap, you know comprehension and all those wonderful things. Mm-hmm. I think cybersecurity really right you know um, and, and doing cybersecurity well and especially uh, working in the intelligence side of things um, and, and those things that kind of tie and and are kind of dovetailed with incident response and threat hunting and forensics. Yeah. Uh, really is dependent on understanding how networks work and okay. understanding how, how systems behave on networks, regardless of the operating system, regardless of the protocols that are at play, regarding, regardless of whose gear, you know, packets are traversing. I think from, from where I sit, I would say uh, academia is great. There's nothing wrong with pursuing a path that's academic. I would also encourage people uh, that to continue to supplement, you know, their knowledge with, you know, if they're going down a university course or collegiate path um, focused on cybersecurity supplement their knowledge with what they're learning in the classroom with, uh, with alternate sources, whether those are books or videos, or, you know, there's plenty of things today, which didn't exist 15, 20 years ago, YouTube channels, right? Um, <laughs> there's always RFCs, which are, which are still fun to read kids. You know, you they probably don't know what that means. <laughs> yeah, uh, but, uh, you know, I, I think that, you know, I think, honestly, I think the best path, I think it for, in my experience really is one that's a combination of the academic but also one that really heavily relies upon or, or affords people the opportunity to be mentored by experienced seasoned veterans in the space. So on, on the job training, I think is an excellent, almost invaluable opportunity for people. I, again, I, I'm not, I'm not dismissive of academics. I, I think very highly of academia and, and uh, those kinds of programmatic approaches, but I think that devoid or divorced or decoupled, whatever terminology you like from uh, real world experience, those things are kind of, uh, they kind of pale in comparison to seeing, you know, seeing these things in real time, you know, working in a SOC, for example, as a junior analyst, uh, working as a security engineer, working as an internet working engineer, and just, you know, sharpening your your, your understanding of, of security as it relates to internet working, right, or systems or whatever the case may be. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I tend to, I come from a, you know, my background, you know, is kind of probably a little different than a lot of other people's, but, uh, it's also common with other people's too, right? So I think for people who have similar backgrounds to my own, there, were, there was probably a mixture of heavy and rigorous academic stylized environments, but also even much more on the job training because we we're watching this 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 space and the industry uh, unfold in front of our eyes, right? So yeah. um, I would encourage people to get their arms around as much as they possibly can. And, uh, you know, don't be shy about reaching out to people to ask for help. You know, um, that's important, right? You know, mentors don't fall off of trees and mentees don't fall off of trees, right? So I think if people are looking for mentorship, they shouldn't be shy about asking. That's There's nothing wrong with that, right? And I think that for people who are in a position to mentor <clears throat> and really are concerned about ensuring that some of the things uh, that we're talking about continue to be passed on, generationally speaking, right? So that, for lack of a better term, uh, I think there's ample opportunities. I know several folks in the industry uh, who do a, a really, really great job of mentoring people and have done so um, you know, Lance James, for example, does a lot of mentoring, um, has done so for many, many years. Gunter Ullman, a lot of mentoring, uh, many, many years. Uh, John Pierce does a lot of mentoring. There's a lot of folks out there uh, in industry who do tons and tons of mentoring. Josh Corman does a lot of mentoring. Lots of people. And I could, I could list names and, and build bigger and bigger name lists. Uh, Andrew Hayes, 
does lots of mentoring. Mike Sconzo does lots of mentoring. There are a lot of people who do this and do it really, really well. And that's just a short list. Allison Nixon does a lot, does a lot of mentoring. There's a ton of people out there who are willing to share their knowledge and teach people the right way to do these things. And, you know, there are differing schools of thought and philosophy, right? You know, that's, that's important to understand too. Some people put heavier emphasis on, on certain aspects of cybersecurity, especially when it comes to intelligence work and, and research work than others, right? So it's good to have, uh, just like one might kind of arguably look at any kind of disciplinary endeavor, right? It's good to have access to different minds to get different ideas about one school of thought, right? And compare that against another. So um, Absolutely. Yeah, don't be shy, you know, look for, look, they're out there, look for them. I'm That's out there, right. look for me. <laughs> yeah, good people, right? So, and this is kind of one of the things I want to end on. I mean, you have kiddos, I have a niece, right? Like, so when I see my niece on TikTok and this kind of brings it all back full circle, there's so much intelligence sitting there. Like our phones are ridiculous with everything they house that could be so sensitive to organizations. So when you kind of look at TikTok and other apps like that, that are gaining access to all of this data, is there anything we should be teaching little, little kids about or the youth about when they're using these things, like just how dangerous they can be, not even from a cyber standpoint, right? But just from, you know, a, a bad guy, a threat actor person perspective, would you give them any advice of like, put down the TikTok stuff? Stop making the videos or do we just kind of let kids be and let you know figure it out from an organizational perspective yeah i'm not a big fan of just letting people kind of figure it out especially if you have access to experience and information and intelligence that could mitigate threats uh, i think that as an industry right you know and as people working within industry um and people living in a society we have an obligation to, to help where we can if yeah. we want to see and the continued trend of society improve right so uh, when it comes to young people, um, you know, hey, w we were all young once. I was young once. I used to have hair, you know, a long time ago and other things, right? <laughs> so I, I, I understand, you know, how it comes off as sounding pedantic when someone says, hey, you really shouldn't utilize these applications or you should be cognizant of, you know, kind of tightening up your, secu the, your, your security posture and making it harder for people to gain information about you as opposed to freely giving it out, you know, to people on the internet, which is a very inverse model from the one that most of us in my generation grew up with, right? You know, today's world, people are encouraged to give us, you know, social media networking has kind of done a great job of this, right? It's kind of changed the paradigm where people are encouraged to give up more and more and more of their personal information for a variety of reasons, right? Not all of which are nefarious, but certainly could be exploited by someone with, an, with nefarious intent. Um, but that's markedly different than the world that I grew up in, especially when I got into the industry and the military and outside of it, right? The idea was to, to give up as little as you could Sure. And ultimately control that attack, your attack surface. So uh, we're living in a world where, uh, it, it, again, it's diametrically opposed to that model, right? Where and you're encouraged to give up more and share more via all these different outlets. And um, under the pretext that most of these things are benign, some of which are not, and some of which are have been actively leveraged as, as collections ecosystems by people with adversarial or nefarious intent. So I think uh, where we can, we should shore up the loose ends and we should aid people who don't have that expertise in uh, becoming educated uh, so they can make informed decisions. Parents, whether they're parents or guardians, make an informed decision on behalf of a minor. Young people, mm -hmm. if we can, and if they're open to the idea, make an informed decision because it could, it could be, uh, it could it could have uh, a significant impact on on you in the, in the long term, right? Uh, we'd be silly not to think about these things as potentially uh, exploitable and potentially, you know, uh, you know, kind of deemed as being targets for a fodder by an adversarial mm -hmm. entity. You know, whether it's a cyber criminal entity or whether it's a 
foreign intelligence service or a hostile nation state. Uh, it would be silly and foolish of people to not think that these are potentially ideas that are circulating in those ecosystems, right? Um, we just would be, right? So I think if we take a responsible approach toward things like social media and toward things like um, the sharing of data and intelligence and the the um, encouraging of people to give up less about themselves, especially young people, children, I think that's good. We're serving a greater good, right? We're protecting people who otherwise maybe couldn't protect themselves or wouldn't know how, you know, uh, you know, uh, in and of themselves. So. Definitely. Well, I'll leave you with this. So my last question, I told you I'd come full circle. I'll bring it back somehow if my ADD-ness doesn't go all over. What's next for cybersecurity and will? So what does critical intelligence look like for you? Is there anything fun and exciting you're working on that you can share with us? Um, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, intelli- <laughs> the work, the work I do and the work I do at, at Prevalian and the work I do with my peers, you know, kind of throughout industry is never dull. Um, we're going to, you know, continue to do what we do, right? And that's, uh, you know, collect and synthesize the most highly actionable and meaningful intelligence um, that we can that has uh, applicability and efficacy against uh, real-time adversarial actions, right? And that's just been kind of thematically speaking, uh, the story of a lot of our lives for many, many years, right? So I'm going to continue to do what I do. I'm working on some, I'm working on some papers and I've got some research projects underway and I'm working on uh, some kind of uh, some nascent book uh, <laughs> type of uh, exercises. And at the same time, just working uh, to, to continue to, to do my part within the organization that I work for to continue to promote uh, what, what we feel is the industry's most revolutionary approach to uh, intelligence to date. So uh, we're going to keep pushing, pushing the envelope. Well, I'm excited to see. I appreciate your time and your very valuable insight. I know you've had a ton of hands-on experience. So thank you for not only sharing that with me, but sharing that, you know, at DEF CON with our audience. Um, And I wish you all of the best and I can't wait to see everything else you accomplish. Yeah, thank you for having me. Have a great DEF CON, everyone. It's a little unorthodox to DEF CON this way. (laughs) Um, But I I wish everyone... um, a great, a great remaining DEF CON and a safe, uh, safe existence. I would say safe travels, but not so many people are traveling. Uh, and, and again, yeah, if people are looking for mentors and they're looking for people uh, to, to be connected with in, in the form of like a mentoring network, you know, network or ecosystem, uh, reach out. There are people who are willing to help and people who are willing to take the time to share their knowledge with uh, people getting started or people who are already in industry who want to make a move into the intelligence side of things. So. Awesome. Well, great. Thanks everyone for attending. Hope you got a lot of useful information out of this. We're really excited. As Will said, if you need anything, feel free to contact myself, contact Will. We're more than happy to be there, be resources for you guys, and we will talk to you all soon. So thanks so much and have a great Sunday. Bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the CWN Esports Podcast. Check us out on CyberWarriorNetwork.com and follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn.